0: Oh, welcome to the E. Michael Jones YouTube channel, uh, we have a very small window of opportunity here between being unfrozen and perhaps being banned forever, and I can't think of a better way to use this window of opportunity to talk to John Waters the quantum Irish journalist, at least quantum for the Irish Times, who has written a book uh, about what happened to him. And I had the pleasure of meeting him in person at the Notre Dame Conference on Ethics and Culture in early November and talked about how he lost all of his friends. Welcome, John. Thank
1: you. Thank you very much, Michael.
0: So, John, you, you, you walked into the room, you looked like a wounded veteran. Yes. You looked like you had just been let go from the, uh, from the military hospital after the Battle of the Bulge or, or Waterloo or something yeah. like that. Yeah. Uh, a, a striking contrast to John Haldane, who gave the first uh, presentation. So tell us, tell us what happened to you. How, what happened to you? What, what, what went on here?
1: Well, uh, I, I used to be a journalist. I was with the Irish Times for 24 years. I was a columnist with them. Uh, I suppose I was always uh, what is called a contrarian or a controversialist. Uh, this is what people call you because they find your positions unfamiliar, and therefore they assume that they're not just unusual, but perhaps wrong. and that you're Now, always-
0: wait. now can, can I ask you, were you contrarian from the very beginning? I mean, you're you're talking about 20 years of of journalism at the Irish Times. So, is that your identity from the beginning, or did you get in, this later on?
1: In certain respects, I was uh, on certain issues. For example, nationalism, the national question. Uh, I was pretty contrarian, but I was generally speaking either uh, a a wall on what we call uh, liberal issues, or you know. I suppose, softly left liberal on, on certain questions. And uh, then I had various reawake, reawakenings in myself, first of all, in relation to Catholicism, which I, it's a long story, but I essentially became an alcoholic and, and went into AA and discovered their idea of God as we understand him, and, and started to then rethink my whole position on religion, realized that I, I had missed the most fundamental part of it, which was structural the structural nature of the human person.
0: This, and what, I think this this is a, this is a crucial aspect of what we need to talk about here. We need to talk about Catholicism in Ireland. Yeah, and, and uh, the the island of saints here, the island where Saint Patrick drove the snakes out of Ireland. We have a conception over here of Ireland as a Catholic country. Is that the country you grew up in?
1: It is the country I grew up in, but I'm afraid that country is now very much a thing of the past and and that happened almost it appeared to happen almost overnight. Let's put it that that. I don't know that it did actually happen overnight. I once wrote an article maybe twenty odd years ago saying because at that time there was a decline in church attendance and there was talk the the the, the hierarchy were talking in terms of that there was, you know, an incipient problem, but it it hadn't really advanced very far. And I, I I at that time wrote an article saying that I thought uh, it would resemble what Václav Havel, how Václav Havel described communism, that he said it was like a, an oak tree which stood there in the, in, in the field and was rotting from the inside. And that all it would take was from somebody to come up and leave their touch their finger on it, and it would topple over. And essentially, that's what happened to the Catholic Church in the end for all kinds of, I think,
0: reasons we could go into. Uh, so, you know, I, I, what, what's yeah, going to some of them? What, what do you mean it was rotting from the inside? I mean, it was was it the Irish people? I mean, James Joyce said that the the Irish were priest ridden uh, 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 people, that the, they they. They did what they did what they were told by because the priests said it was well, was that the was that the issue that they they hadn't internalized the essence of Catholicism they were just being told to do something and did it yeah. because they were told
1: yeah well I think that was a large part of it not all the Irish people there was a lot of anti clericalism right through my life you know and and there was a lot of kind of abstentionism from certain kind of moralistic aspects of the church I don't mean in any kind of uh, you know, that, that people were immoral or anything, but on, on any under any heading, but they were kind of indifferent to the clergy uh, in many respects. Some people, my father was, for example, my father kind of was a, was a profound Catholic, but he, he operated his own Catholicism within the system that was there. He went to mass, but he said the rosary through mass almost as an act of a state. That statement.
0: was common. That was yeah. common among uh, my, uh, well, I would say my grandfather's generation.
1: Yes, it was. And and he was a very devout man, but he conducted his own relationship through the church with God. And and, and he didn't take a lot of notice of, of priests and bishops, you know, and and, and uh, was quite, quite amused by them in many respects. You know, a lot of them, you know, he would find them funny. There was a particular bishop who subsequently became notorious, Eamon Casey? He became notorious for having an affair with a, an American woman, as it happens. And what he—I remember him. Uh, he would see him on the TV, you know. Seeing, he used to, he used to. He would tell jokes and sing and he was that kind of guy. And my father used to to laugh at him, like, and, and, and not at his jokes, but at the idea of him, you know. And 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 subsequently, I, I used to wonder, like, why did you how what did you see in this guy? Because he was a kind of very popular figure. My father didn't really have any regard for him. And and subsequently then this story emerged and, and I felt my father was it was in some sense vindicated by by that experience. So there was a lot of that kind of stuff. But generally speaking, I would think you would say that the Irish people had a, a view of Catholicism that was quite simplistic in the sense that it was rule-based. It was thou shalt not and, 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 yeah. and all of that. And they didn't really go any deeper than the actual headline rule, nor asked to go, nor were they informed. I mean, when we were in school, I, often, I wrote in one of my books, Last Agnostic, that we had a Christian te- doctrine teacher who was a priest and he used to come in once a week, and if you asked him a question, you know, out of childlike puzzlement about something, he would just repeat the mantra, it's the law of God. And that kind of spoke for the entire culture, really. The other aspect of it was that because of the famine, uh, the the famines that happened in the 1840s, and I mean, that's a controversial word to use about them, I'm using it in a kind of a loose way. They, because they were more than famines, you know, obviously there was a genocidal aspect to the whole thing, but uh, at that time, there was after that a kind of devotional revolution and there was uh, quite a significant change in Irish culture arising from the fact that the church really imposed itself in quite a moralistic way, perhaps to do with, you know, to try to control sexual license, which had gone a bit wild in the years before the famine, the 100 years before the famine, and and that it caused the population to balloon. That's one theory. Uh, And so they took a hand. And one of the ways they took a hand on that was that they moved in on the family through the mother and marginalized the father. And there was a kind of a a symbiotic relationship between the priest and the mother to control the morality of the family. That was the way it done. Yeah. And the the men were kind of outside this loop entirely. They were regarded as kind of like irrelevant to the whole. Time. So it was it was devotional, devotional Catholicism. It was. Yeah, it was. And, and
0: let so, me, let me, there, there was uh, there's something significant that happened in 1879. OK, yes. uh, Pope Leo the 13th issued an encyclical in which he said that Thomism was now the official philosophy of the Catholic Church. This spoke. This sparked what came to be known as the Thomist revival, a kind of intellectual revival that swept through the church, uh, uh, specifically in France. Uh, Gary Lagrange, Jacques Maritain, Etienne Gilson—these are big names—and these people came to America, uh, and and uh, ended up uh, among the fighting Irish uh, uh, of Notre Dame, where you were. Uh, yes. Was there was there a, a Thomist revival in Ireland around this time?
1: absolutely not and that's very interesting because you know 1879 had another significant event as well which was the apparitions at knock and they created a new beginning for the irish church in the sense that they became a a, a, the devotion to to the virgin mary became even stronger you would say than the devotion to jesus christ and that has that continued on for over 100
0: years and that's so how, you're heading in the opposite direction here, yes, in a sense, yes. uh, from, from an intellectual Catholicism. You're heading toward a devotional Catholicism. You're choosing the mother over the father. Yes, right. You exactly got it there,
1: Michael. That's precisely it. And, and, and so the mother became, this is the, you see, I keep saying about Ireland, because we, because we import all these concepts, we imported the concept of the patriarchy. And I say Ireland was never a patriarchy. In my, in, in not for a very long time, anyway. In, in certainly in the last uh, two hundred years or one hundred and fifty years, anyway, uh, Ireland was a matriarchy disguised as a patriarchy. The men were basically doing functional things, but the women had the authority. They had the moral authority. Uh, the mothers had the moral authority, and that all worked through the Virgin Mary and the, 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 the started with the apparitions of Knock, and that saturated uh, Irish culture uh and and that, that so there was no intellectual basis whatever to Irish Catholicism. That's
0: interesting. That. now you you had to discover the uh, lack of patriarchy in a in a a, pers- a very personal way.
1: yeah
0: uh when you got involved with father's' rights. that's I right mean, do you see you see a connection here?
1: yeah i do indeed well before we're actually back on track here because i i was talking about the kind of the, the awakenings i had in between those two the the AA and the catholicism thing i went back to catholicism you know in my in my 40s and the second one then was that i went to prague in 1990 for the first three elections after the fall of communism and there i had certain experiences that awoke me to the reality of uh, socialism which i had previously been kind of soft on, shall we say. And I I immediately started to look into that as well. So that was the second kind of red pill, as we say, red pill moment. And the third then was, as you say, eh, when I became a father uh, out of wedlock uh, and eh, there was difficulties in the relationship immediately. And when I began to test the matter, I found that as a father, I couldn't believe this as a father, I had absolutely no rights whatsoever in relation to my child nor has she any relation any rights in relation to her father and I found this staggering staggering this was like in 1996 and you know as being that kind of lefty lefty kind of soft lefty person that I had been an editor of left-wing magazines uh, yeah
0: you were uh, you were involved in rock and roll the whole rock and roll scene that's how I became a journalist. I mean,
1: I, 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 I only got into journalism, really, by the back door. Uh, by I was driving a mail van and, and and for years, and I started to write articles in my spare time about rock bands and going to concerts and, and uh, reviewing was
0: that. Was that an act of rebellion against your, uh, your understanding of the church or Ireland? or, or No, what? it wasn't.
1: It, wasn't. It, it was something else. It was actually that suddenly, you know, I've, I've often talked about this, that as I, I grew up as a very devout Catholic as a child. and I mean, the church was right in our in the middle of the town, you know, and we passed it every time we went to school in the morning, at lunchtime and in the evening, we would go into the church. And the church was the place that the only house in the in the only building in the town, apart from my own home that I could walk in the door of. and And it was a kind of a very beautiful place, and and you could kneel down and and spend as much time as you liked there. and that that I found that really exhilarating. For myself within myself and so I was a very devout child and my father used to bring me to the all the, the Devotions and so on in the evening times and we would say the stations of the cross virtually every night. We would do this and You know when I got in my tunes and but there was this explosion then of culture uh, Pop culture in, in even in, in the west of Ireland in Castlereagh my hometown It was possible suddenly you were aware that the Beatles had happened you know, the Rolling Stones had happened. That football, you know, there was this amazing Irish footballer called George Best, whom I became a huge fan of. He was like, they used to call him the fifth Beatle, El Beatle. He was was probably the greatest footballer that ever lived. Nobody believes this now, but just go on TV, go on YouTube and search for George Best and you will see the greatest footballer, better than any of these guys they talk about. So these things were all suddenly happening. That's why I had ruled my hair long, because of him. You know, he he had long hair, he's dead now, go rest him. but uh, this, this whole thing, pop music, Radio Luxembourg was the station. You could just hear it on the, over the static on, 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 in the middle of the night on a transistor radio. And it just became exhilarating. And the immediately to me there was this sense that there was a conflict between this new world. I didn't know why, quite, I didn't articulate it, and the world that I'd grown up in, the Catholic world where the church was at the center of it. And that I had this sense of Jesus that he was a nice guy, but he wouldn't like this kind of stuff. You know, that he, he would disapprove of me being involved in some of this stuff, that it was leading down a very bad path. So, But I was seduced by it overwhelmingly. And, and the way I kind of thought it is that I kind of had a real problem. So basically what happened is one night I just crept out the window on Jesus and abandoned him left him there.
0: You had the conscious sense that you were doing that?
1: Yes, I had. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And and that there was a clear choice that you couldn't have both. Now, after I think about it now, maybe I could have had both. I often say like, you know, the way I put it is, is somewhat, uh, you know, bordering on the on the, the blasphemous. But I say that I, I at the moment that I had a choice between Elvis and Jesus, I chose Elvis. And uh, but I, I kind of think now I didn't have to make that choice, but that's a complicated story and I've often tried to get into it in public, but it's a long story. How how could you reconcile these things? Because in another sense, they're irreconcilable for reasons that I didn't know at the time. I didn't understand where all this stuff was leading. It was just, the music was just exciting. The 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 whole thing, the Beatles, the Beatles playing on the roof of that building in, the, in Let It Be, you know, that was one of the most extraordinary moments I, 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 that of my childhood, to see that.
0: Yeah. Well, to of that. Reading your book, I was struck by similarities with with my life in many, in many different ways, in many different ways. The way you talk about your father is the way I felt about my grandfather, a man who, who left uh, Cork, came to America, uh, came to Philadelphia in 1900, got a job and was very successful. In what he was doing but he was a man who worked with his hands he did hardwood floors he put the floors in uh, to the the mansions of the Wasp elite that lived in Chestnut Hill and and, and Bryn Mawr in Philadelphia and then my father became a, a got an, an MBA and became a government servant so he lived uh, as a pencil pusher he called, he yeah. called himself a pencil pusher you know yeah.
1: I, like, and, I, became uh, a pen, I became a pencil
0: pusher. Uh, you know, I was
1: the first one in the line of my family not to work with his hands, properly, in this, in the sense that we mean when we say that. Uh, my father was, you know, he came from farming stock. He would lived on a farm in Sligo, with his his four brothers, and he some they had so most of them had to go. All but one had to go because there was only seven acres, which is not a lot of land. Uh, no, for, uh, no. Um, in, in,
0: 19, in 1974, I got my wife and my oldest son and we rode our tandem across Ireland and we ended up in Balahadrine to see the ancestral farm of my, on my grandmother's side. Oh. And there were two descendants, and one of them had gone to London because no one would marry a farmer, and the other was a bachelor because no one would marry a farmer. And eventually, yeah. they died uh, without marrying, and that land just passed uh, out of out of the family. So there are lots lots of similarities that, well, yeah, that, I, that I
1: see. Ballahadreen is just twelve miles from where I grew up, and and uh, my father went there twice a day with his mail car delivering mail and, and, and so on uh, for many years, for decades. And I did it myself in turn. And uh, he, he, my father was a very unusual man. You know, he, he, he had very, yet I would say no vanity whatsoever. He had no, he was almost un- totally unworldly. Uh, he drove these mail. He, he drove this thing, which is essentially a kind of a stagecoach uh, with the, with the uh, an internal combustion engine uh, where he would carry mails, from the main station, main post office in Castlereagh, and for, from the railway station in Castlereagh, to all the sub-offices, including Balladrine. And he would also carry newspapers, and he would carry passengers. And the passengers would sit on the bales of newspapers or on the mailbags, because there were no seats in the back of the, the van. And he would have maybe 14 or up to eight, up to twenty people crammed into the back of this van, walking along. And it was like a, a mobile kind of Studio for you know all everybody was shouting and arguing and talking. And he was in the front, you know, veering over and back across the road. Right.
0: <laughs> so I'm, I'm, I'm pedaling uh, west. Yeah. And I'm looking with my wife and son on the back, and I'm suddenly realizing all the trees are bent in my direction. I'm yes. heading into a ferocious headwind, and it's probably that's the standard uh, procedure there. And uh, a truck stops and asks me if I want a a ride. So I get on the truck, put the bike on the truck, on what looks like sacks of grain or something like that. I get in the cab and they take me part of the way. So I, I understand what you're saying here. And my, father was, my father could do anything with his hands. He could build things, he could
1: carpentry, he could do, he was an engineer in his head. He used to read all these books about engineering. And he, like when I was doing my algebra in my in school, you know, I would come in a, a, an impossible problem. I would know the method, but I wouldn't be able to get the answer. And he would look at it. And this man who had left school at 11 would just on the back of an envelope, write out the, an equation, which had nothing to do with the method I'd learned and, and, and work out the answer and he would be right. Like he was, these people were extraordinarily intelligent people. This is the amazing thing that we have gone to a stage now with our educational system where we've produced people with lots of documentation to prove their intelligence, but there's no other evidence. That's right. Whereas.
0: And the, all, yeah. And th- this, this world came to an end or did it, I, is that, uh, you, you agree. This world oh, came to an end. It's over. Yeah. And, and it's, it overed,
1: it, it, it finished shudderingly and I, I'm not quite sure of the moment, but it's, the, the final, I think, it fell off a cliff sometime in the last decade. Finally, having veered all over you,
0: the You, you were a significant player in this transition. Possibly, I, I don't know. Uh, 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 you I, were a witness. You were a. Your your book is is yeah. de- you're speaking to your father throughout the entire yeah. book. Yeah. So doubted, at least a witness to this transition. Maybe yeah. there are people who don't even know that it happened, but you do. I mean, you understood what happened. That's
1: Something right. Something changed. Something changed. Lots of things changed, but I don't know. It's hard. We're only now putting the pieces together, and it's very. That's interesting right. To talk That's to you, right. and to, to hear where some of this stuff is coming from. You know, there are all kinds of clues, crowding in on us now
0: about what what how what happened to our country. Uh, you got dragged into this. Yes, you, you said you were a conscientious objector in the culture wars. Yeah, I was. A, you you a, didn't want. You didn't choose this role. I was a draft dodger, for sure. I mean,
1: <laughs> I, I, I didn't want involved in this I, I, I because I kind of knew it was going to be a dirty war. I, I, I had a sense that it was dirty. You know, I mean, I would get calls to go on TV to talk about uh, uh, homosexuality and all this stuff. And I'd say, no, thank you. I don't. Uh, I'm busy tonight or something. You know, I'm washing my hair, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, then it kind of came after me because I was a Catholic and because I was articulating these things, because I had gone back after the a experience to the church and rediscovered and started to read up the Ratzinger and all these guys and see, well, what are they saying? And are they wrong? And, and, and I started getting to John Paul's re- writings and I thought, these guys are are they're they're smart guys you know and so this and they, was
0: a, this was a new catholicism then for you it wasn't praying the rosary at uh, no. the shrine of our lady of not you no. had to get to get intellectual about what you were doing yes. now.
1: it was re, it was a reasonable catholicism it was a reasonable uh, proposition for how the world was and for the human how the human being was in the world and when i start to look at it you know it's very i've often said michael that even yet my experience of catholicism is that some things I have realized I didn't understand when I was growing up, now I do and I accept them. There are other things which I didn't understand growing up and I still don't get and don't, I don't, as it were, agree with the teaching. But I know that the older I get, the time will come if I live long enough that I will get it, if the penny will drop and I will say, ah, now I understand. So, because this seems to me to be a total uh, uh, scheme for the engagement of the human person with with earthly reality, yes. and that's what Catholicism is. And it took me a long time to see that. I just thought it was a bunch of rules that old guys had imposed on the world, just out of you know badness or out of a, a kind of a a miserableness, you know? And it's nothing like that at all. Uh, and as you say, I say, I, I started, you know, I, I, all this stuff, I started to dig into all this stuff under different headings, Catholicism, uh, socialism, and then under the whole idea of, of justice, social justice, and the whole, you know, how this ties in with the whole rock and roll thing was that ideologically that, has, that was very much in Ireland as it was in the UK aligned with left liberal ideas and i was i was taking them on board and not dissenting now i never i i i never spoke about abortion but the other ones i would sort of you know and i would uh, more importantly i would criticize or attack those on the other side and i had some experiences with that which are interesting you know that when you would meet one of these people by accident or whatever and spend some time with them they would always turn out to be totally different than you expected. Much smarter, funnier, more life-affirming. Uh, you know, more, you know, they, they were entirely different people. Than, which
0: people uh, are you talking about now?
1: I'm talking about people in the pro-life movement, for example, uh, uh, who had been demonised our, by our side, as I say, on the left-liberal side of the equation. I worked in Hot Press, which is a, a, a music paper, which is very left-wing and still is, and it hasn't changed at all over the last thirty odd years. And there were certain people that we just kind of lampooned because they were, you know, traditional Catholics. And then when you would meet these people, as I say, they they were completely different. And all of this was part of an education. But I think that my, what we were talking about there, my daughter, when my daughter came along, and I realized that I had no rights. So I said, well, as a left-leaning person who has been an editor of various magazines, all I have to do now is go back to my uh, former colleagues who were so interested in human rights and, and justice and all of these things. And once I explain to them what I've discovered, they're going to just deal with it straight away. It'll become the most important issue of our time, the most pressing issue of our time. And I did. And as I often said, they, what do they do? They kick my head in. And they've been kicking my head in ever since. Because, And I, I didn't know what it was about, but I know now that whether they understood it or not, or whether they were just obeying, in almost some kind of quasi-religious way, uh, an ideology that had been given to them. They were acting to protect the future rights of homosexuals from the imposition or the encroachment of natural rights.
0: You mean, you you think they could see that far into the future? That's a
1: question I've had. I'm sure some of them must have seen this.
0: you know, you speech. you struck me you struck me when I was reading the book. I thought, this is a man of blood and soil. Mm. This is yeah. a man who who is a rooted person, a man who is rooted in Ireland in Irish culture, you know. And I kept thinking, unlike myself, it, it, being an American is an abstract intellectual thing, you know. Uh, and you it, it forces you to become a philosopher, or else you're just destroyed. But you well, were brought into this thing. You know, first of all, because of blood, because of, of, of your daughter. Yes. You, you, yes. you were ver- you were eloquent in defending this kind of bond of blood against the people who wanted to basically turn it into some to some abstraction.
1: Well, you know, Michael, I mean, like I didn't feel again that I had a choice about that. You know, I felt my thing, my father's finger in the small of my back. If ever I was just inclined to run away from the challenge of my responsibility of being a father to my daughter. I would feel my father's finger in my back.
0: Yeah, that's blood. It's yeah. blood the other direction. Yeah. And,
1: and, and, and uh, uh, so, so, yeah, that's right. Blood and, and, and soil as well. I mean, Ireland, it meant something, you see.
0: Ireland. You, you meant- dug turf. I remember that passage in the book where you're digging turf. If that isn't soil, what, it, what is it? What is soil? Well, well, that was very interesting because we, myself and my brother-in-law, we, we,
1: for several years, we cut turf and we cut it with the the by hand, you know, and we did it all the correct way. And, uh, you know, the, quite against the culture at the time, because uh, the other farmers in the locality were bringing in what they call the hopper, you know, which is a kind of huge hoover that they stuck into the ground and sucked up, you know, tons and tons of turf and dumped it on the ground and cut it into pieces. And... Uh, uh, and they were kind of laughing at us, you know, at this stage, you know, which is kind of emblematic of the culture in general. That a culture which, you know, I grew up with, and, and in some ways I resisted as being true traditionalist, as this growing, young, trendy guy. Suddenly I, it passed me out, or I passed it out. I'm not quite sure how you'd put that. But now I'm the one who's actually defending the tradition, and everybody, even the older people, are kind of gone off in this crazy, uh, you know, uh, voyage of of you know, nihilism and and, and complete kind of abandon uh, with regard to any fundamental views, because uh, that's what's happened. You see, it's not just young people; old people are just as affected because the levels, no, it, of propaganda in Ireland are so enormous.
0: The way it, to- it's a catastrophe. Uh, it is. It's a catastrophe. Even if you compare it with America, uh, uh, Americans never voted for abortion mm. no they never they never voted for gay marriage. Whenever this came up for a vote uh, the the people of America, even in California, they voted down gay marriage in California. That's right. That's how uh, Brendan Eich got in trouble. He yeah. gave a contribution to that That's so, right. so you, 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 you stumbled so you, you you're on um, you're, uh, you have a moving description. the book begins with uh, this uh, talk show. And uh, you're suddenly, uh, there's a drag queen on the talk show who calls you a homophobe.
1: That's right. Out of the blue, you know, and I wasn't, you know, I wasn't, I didn't know who this guy was. I'd never heard of him. And uh, he, uh, 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 he knew who I was clearly. And, and, uh, but he didn't offer any evidence. That was interesting. They never do, of course. Because the, the, these words like homophobe, they're what Roger Scruton, the philosopher, the English philosopher, calls uh, spell words, as in magic spell. But they're not words to do with communication or, or, or information or, or instruction. Or, or They're actually to do with creating a spell that, will, that you will be unable to get out of. Right. So, uh, so they don't ever offer – they, what they do is they, they, they juxtapose your name with the word for a long time. Keep repeating it. And then they don't, at that stage, they don't need evidence. And then eventually they'll come in with a tiny piece, the the best piece of evidence they can get. Just maybe you, uh, I don't know, you might make fun of Elton John, who's a gay singer, right? You might just make a joke about him. That becomes homophobic then, you see.
0: And then, at, and then, and then, all hell broke loose. It's yeah. not just that uh, this guy said this about you. All hell broke loose after that. Well, you you see, were, it was an internet lynch mob that went well, after you. That's right. Because we, we sent
1: I, I, and a couple of other people who had been mentioned on the program. We sent. We got our solicitors. Our solicitor. We both had the same solicitor. We all had the same solicitor. We. He wrote a letter to the the channel, the national channel, RTE, and asked them if they would please retract this allegation. Now, that was just standard. We, we, we just, you know, we thought that they would agree because no evidence had been offered and there was no evidence. I mean, in some ways, there ought to have been evidence because I should have been aware of who these people were and how dangerous they were. And I should have been talking about it. But I wasn't. I was, as I say, a draft dodger. And uh, so what we did not understand was that this was in January 2014, which is about 18 months before the referendum. The referendum was already more or less scheduled. The date hadn't been agreed as such, but we knew it would be sometime This is
0: the referendum on gay marriage
1: Yes, we knew that it would be sometime in 2015 So they were what we didn't understand was that they were already marshaled their forces were already marshaled and by that I mean that that they were professionalised That they
0: were, Now you say marshaled, you're, you're talking about war now, aren't you? Yeah, I am, yes This is war This is war they were, this they is this is a refined form of psychological and cultural warfare that Ireland was subjected to.
1: Yes, and we had no idea what was coming, and I no. had no idea what we were dealing with. I had absolutely zero idea, because it was absolutely extraordinary. They came like in in, 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 in swarms, attacking on Twitter, on social media, first of all, through my email, uh, in the, the mainstream media, nonstop. Politicians then would be uh, sent out to attack you further. Even the Archbishop of Dublin, Uh, Dermot Martin had a goal supporting this drag queen. Can you believe it? Can you believe it?
0: Look, I I met uh, Dermot Martin in the 1980s when he was secretary to Cardinal Gagnon at the uh, Council on the Family, in in Congregation on the Family in Rome. Mm. And uh, I thought he was a supporter uh, of the family. I thought he was one of those conservative Catholics that I identified with at that time.
1: Absolutely not. He, he, he was sent to Dublin to fix the problem of child abuse, to, to, to cope with the PR problem that child abuse had created. And that seems to be his priority. Priority. So in, in order to achieve that, he has, this is my so, analysis. So
0: you, you, come, you come back to the church and suddenly where's the church when you need them? Where are they?
1: Well, there is no church. You see, this has been my life story, uh, Michael, that I started off a left winger and, and, and gradually realized that that was kind of a really uh, asinine position to be taken on anything. But, and everybody, when I was a child, everybody else was uh, conservative in some sense. Uh, now I'm supposed to be conservative and everybody else is crazy. So I've passed them out. I'm, I'm kind of on my own, uh, out in, the, in front, trying to, to defend what is, what has been. It's a losing battle, but yeah, the church, the church is completely, with, with one, with two exceptions maybe, in among the bishops. There are no bishops who speak the truth anymore.
0: Now, uh, do, do, you, do you? we just talked about sophisticated psychological warfare. Do you think the church simply doesn't understand this? Do they have an outdated notion of what warfare is? Yes, they do. I think everybody does. I still think, that, that, you see everybody, this is the interesting thing, uh,
1: Michael, that, Almost everybody in Ireland thinks that what's happened in the last few years in relation to the amendments, to the abortion, uh, uh, the the, the, the striking down of the right to life in the Constitution, the first time, as you said, in history that uh, people have voted down the rights, the fundamental rights of a section of of themselves. Never happened before. Not even the Nazis did that. They wouldn't even have tried it. Uh, We did it. In Ireland. So, and, and similarly, all the human, there are five articles in, in the uh, uh, Constitution, which are natural, uh, fundamental rights. Article four
0: Inalienable.
1: Inalienable rights. And imprescriptible. You cannot be given up and cannot be taken away. And, uh, But now they can, it seems. All you have to do is 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 have a referendum that people don't want them anymore. and so
0: types. so if an army came into your country and invaded your country and then announced that it was going to repeal the Constitution and say that you as Irishmen, no longer have these fundamental rights and you will be a subject people, uh, and we are your rulers now, they would understand that that was war. But yeah. exactly the same thing happened without a shot being fired. And nobody yeah. understands it as war. That's exactly right. And, and the
1: thing about it is people actually think that these phenomena, this is how they think. The mo- vast majority of people, I'm convinced this, as I speak to audiences and sometimes I say stuff. And honestly, with all due respect to my fellow countrymen, it's like actually standing, looking over a gate, speaking to a herd of cows for all the people know what I'm talking about because they think this is a naturalistic spontaneous process that it has something to do with the evolution of time that this is the way society is this is what progress is you you move through certain phases they've been conven- they've been told this and then that you know so if it's now if it's 2015 well it's time for gay marriage if it's 2018 well it's time for abortion if it's 2021 it's time for euthanasia because that's what modern societies do you see that's what they believe And because we have a deeply, profoundly corrupt media, and you you see, this is a very interesting thing of comparison, again, with America. You have all the corruption in some parts of your media that we have in all of ours, which you have other media as well, which we don't. We only have a few YouTubers who are under a serious threat now from YouTube, that they will be cancelled and taken off the air. They're the only residual voice of what journalism used to be, which was to provide the voice of truth, and a platform for the people to to answer back to the powerful. That is gone from our culture completely. They are now simply repeating the lines uh, given to them by the government. There was quite an extraordinary uh, article in The Spectator there uh, the other day, which revealed a report which was issued by a legal firm in London and this legal firm, Dentons, are one of the biggest companies in the world, legal companies in the world. And they were commissioned by the LGBT trans lobby to analyze this issue. And what they're saying is, they're looking at Ireland, Denmark, Norway and Denmark, yes. And they're essentially saying that the, the objective is... to to impose trans thinking, transgenderism on societies so that parents will not have any say, will not have any veto to protect their own children. That's that's essentially what it's about. And this report is saying that they've succeeded in Ireland beyond their wildest dreams in, first of all, anticipating the government, getting in first so that they're in before the government and the government will do what they demand and did what they demanded. Uh, and that they can guarantee, they delivered the press in the sense that the press agreed not to talk about transgenderism until it was over, until they had achieved what they set out to achieve. Now imagine that, that they can deliver the government, the parliament and the media of, a, of a, what is supposed to be a sovereign independent nation. And these institutions go on, they go into work and they get paid at the end of the month. But they're not prepared to actually engage with anybody who asks them, how do you justify your life? How, as editor of the Irish Times, does Paul O'Neill justify his existence now? When a, a legal firm in London can boast that he, has, that they have achieved, the, the, the trans lobby has achieved the silence of the Irish media in order to allow the trans lobby to impose its agenda on Irish society.
0: Has, has your, uh, your plight, uh, has your book caused any type of discussion among your former colleagues? Has anyone reviewed it in Ireland?
1: No, Not in the national media whatsoever. Not a word, not a single word.
0: What uh, about private? Do you get private comments from former colleagues or do they all avoid you? Are they still avoiding you? They, uh,
1: they avoid me. Uh, they avoid me. Uh, 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 it's it's and and it's a mutual at this stage, to be honest. Uh, I, I, no, there has been no discussion. I mean, the book has done remarkably well for a book that has got no mentions on any national prog- uh, national platform. I had a few local radio interviews, which were very good, very powerful, very you know, good journalism. And I've been on YouTube a few times talking about it but nothing in the mainstream media. The only inquiry I got from the mainstream media was, I thought that they just didn't know about it. And then one day I got a phone call, a message from a journalist in in, in a Sunday newspaper. And he wanted to know if I could confirm that my, I had submitted my book to the revenue authorities in search of what is called artist exemption. There's a a provision here where if you're an artist, you can have a work exempted from paying tax. And he said, "It, it sounds very much like your book, so, uh, and he had the title of my book and everything like, well, this is the first time I'd heard anybody in the national media. And of course, the only reason they were interested was, ah, a chance to get waters, a chance <laughs> to commit to get waters again. Not alone, has, not, is he, not alone has he gone calf in hand to the revenue, but they've turned him down. You know? <laughs> Double joy, you know. It's a, uh, so that's, uh, so it's, it's actually quite funny. And, and, but it goes to the fact that, I, I think now, Michael, at this stage, that we have to look differently at our societies. You've been out there in America a long time, and it's a quite a different society, much different. But I, what I'm seeing here is that really, we have to stop looking for recognition for what we do from the old sources. They are corrupted. They are discredited, right. completely discredited. So, I mean, if somebody gives you a... If, if I write a book and somebody offers me an award first, I mean, one of these standard awards, I shouldn't turn it down, obviously. Not that they are. Not that they will. But if I... Because, it, 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 you know, I mean, there was an award recently, and I mean, the list of people who got awards for their books is just laughable. Uh, you know, uh, that we have to, I have to let go of all that and try to find a channel into the consciousness of the, peop- of the people. And I know you're very big on this idea that you can change your consciousness in an instant overnight. And I, I pray and hope that that is true, because de- no country needed that ever as desperately as Ireland now needs it. It's quite shocking. I mean, just to give you some some, uh, you know, little, you know, it's quite hilarious stuff happening. Somebody sent me a report today in which there is about the United Nations, Ireland's relationship with the United Nations. And Ireland has reported to the United Nations that in relation to hate speech, what is called hate speech legislation, that they will reverse uh, the presumption of innocence. So in other words, if you're accused of hate, hate speech now, you will have to prove to the court that you're not guilty. How you do that, I don't know. How do
0: you prove a negative? I've never figured that out. Well, this is like, this is the stuff that's happening. Have you stopped beating your wife? Yeah, that's right. That's the thing. And the other one
1: is that actually now the UN is telling people now in Ireland, telling the government that we have to face our responsibility. Well, you hear this? This is fantastic. We have to face our responsibility for colonialism in the Caribbean.
0: (laughs) Seriously. (laughs) The Irishmen were sent there. They were sent there. You might as well call African. Say the same thing to African. You know. You know why this is, John. Do you know why this? You you didn't probably don't know this, but it's because you're white. I know, yeah. I know you. I know you, Irish people. don't Don't know this, but actually, you're white. We well, you the, the, the Irish had to discover this when they came to America. The Irish came here; they thought they were Irish, and then they were told that they were white. It was the one of the greatest triumphs of social engineering in American history, convincing the Irish people that they're white. Because as soon as you're white, you're a racist, and as soon as you're a racist, you lose every argument. This is amazing, now, Michael. You know, because I mean, this in the last year. People
1: have been talking about, in Ireland, about white supremacy and white privilege.
0: White privilege? Did they know about this during the potato famine? Did they know they had white privilege during the potato famine? Yeah, and it occurred to me that not, this is now
1: like a key indicator of what kind of person you are, it seems. Not once in my 64 years have I ticked ticked a box on a form, and I filled out quite a few of them, which, which, alongside the word white, it never happened, not once. Nobody asked me ever on a forum what color I was. It never occurred to me that I was white or just to say, well, I'm white or, or I'm Caucasian or whatever, anything like that. It's come I used to hear people talking on uh, NYPD Blue, you know, about Caucasians, you know, the suspect is a Caucasian 37 years of age, you know, and I was mm, "That's what's that? You know, what's a Caucasian? And, and uh, uh, like it's quite crazy it's, it's it's this is there's no you know it, there's no knowing where it will go next is the time you see like I often say to people now you know we read our orwell when we were in school we did animal farm and subsequently we read 1984 and if I was to say like back in in hot press in in in, in uh, 1984 we had this section a small section of kind of a teaser at the beginning which was a person a celebrity or a pop star or whatever, we'd ask them random questions, maybe 25 questions, just silly things, your favorite color, whatever, all that kind of stuff. I did Winston Smith for the first edition of uh, 1984 in tribute to Orwell's book, because uh, it was the year. Now, if you were to say to me then, you know, what do I think about dystopianism? What do I think about totalitarianism? I'd say, well, you know, we've been very lucky, we're very lucky people because it's not going it's never happened here really, not in that sense anyway. Of course, it had happened in in its own way, but we had this sense that these things could never happen. Wherever else they happened, they happened in far off places where there were very stupid people or very uh, evil people or something like that. The idea that they could happen in Ireland, which is a deeply sensible place, it was impossible. But since then, the clock has actually gone backwards, it seems. We've actually gone back into history, not forward. They tell us all the time we're going, we're progressing. But actually, in all the most fundamental ways, we're going backwards. And now you have a minister of the government telling people that there is the presumption of innocence is gone. You know, like, what well,
0: next? Does this, I've been told that the next referendum is going to be on hate speech, where the Irish are going to be asked to abolish their right to free speech. Take that out of the Constitution. Well, is that is that correct? Well, I actually don't. They don't
1: actually need to have a referendum on it. I mean, they ought to have a referendum before they did something as dramatic as this. But the, the Constitution already for, you know, has a, has a slight cop-out which says, as provided by law, unless as provided by law, which is in some of the articles of the Constitution, a very strange kind of weasel phrase that destroys implicitly several of the key articles anyway. And that's one of them that so they can in the, you know, national security or whatever they, you know, uh, uh, public decency, all these kind of cop-out. You know. So uh, it's a question of definition. definition And what they're what what we know already, I mean, we already have people, what they're actually trying to do in England, and, and, and they're trying to do the same thing here, is to bend people's perception of what the police force is for by implying that it's something more than just simply a law enforcement Uh, uh, Force, And so uh, what they're trying to do then is sort of say, like you have policemen now in England calling people up about their Twitter uh, posts uh, and saying, I don't like, I'm concerned, I'm concerned. There was a guy on, a Christian guy on the other day who had something about transgender and he was a former policeman himself. And, and a colleague, a senior colleague, rang up and says, you know, I, I want to talk to you about you. So he said, OK, well, uh, what crime am I accused of? Oh, he says, oh, there's no crime. Oh, good. And so why are you calling me? You're a policeman. And he, he says, well, I, I'm concerned about your thinking. So this is where we're going, you see. Like there's a, the, 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 guard, the, the head of the guard Force, the police force in Ireland, recently said, introduced a new guideline for police officers. This is before any legislation saying and it's something like any criminal act which in the perception of the victim or any other person is deemed to be uh, based in prejudice or hostility rooted in gender, race, etc, etc, shall be deemed to be hate speech.
0: So well, how how can you argue against someone's perception? Well, how can't. can I argue against anyone's perception?
1: No you can't. And and, and since
0: and so why should perception how could perception possibly be the basis for the law? That's well, impossible.
1: Yeah, well this is this is the Kafkaesque nightmare, nightmare. this is exactly like the logic of the trial. It's a, it's exactly this is the, the the language that Kafka constructed of perceiving reality in in a in a is slightly adjacent but nevertheless remote. Uh, uh, way and and that's where we are now that they and it's quite terrifying and extraordinary to see this happening in Ireland and then we need to get into the well the reasons why is it happening in Ireland well the the other story about Ireland is that we we never really uh, achieved independence Uh, we got nominal independence we were left swinging in the wind for many years, you know, we didn't join the United Nations until 1955 for all of that that may be worthless now. But nevertheless, it was an indicator of where. I mean, you can imagine a country like Ireland becoming independent now. It would be center stage in the world of politics and of uh, international assistance. At that time, we were like between two world wars. Uh, n- no, we were left swinging in the wind. So uh, Ireland really... Fared very badly in the first four five decades of independence. It was struggling, and many it, it was hemorrhaging its population all over the world to America, to Canada, to to uh, England, and a, it was only in the 60s that there was a slight turnaround, and even then it was very weak and very short-lived. And again in the in the 80s we had another recession, and again in 2008, of course, we had a massive recession. And underlying all this, you can see this pattern that what has emerged as a a policy through the political system for the sustaining of Ireland is what they call FDI, Foreign Direct Investment. And that is that we invite in other external operators to come and create employment in Ireland and we give them the lowest tax rate in Europe if not the world, 12.5% corporation tax. Now, that's the nominal rate. In fact, in practice, many of these companies are operating on a virtual zero-rated tax. Uh,
0: was was that the beginning of the end? Yes. Was it this, this was the invasion. It was these multinational corporations who yes. showed up. That was the first wave of the invasion of Ireland.
1: That's right. The chemical industry was first, and it's very interesting when you look back. I wrote about this 20-odd years ago, that... The Irish government, back in the 70s, offered chemical industries, people like Pfizer and, and DuPont, the, the ability to come into Ireland and essentially to pollute the landscape if they wanted to. In other words, they said, we have a pristine landscape. It was called the natural endowment factor. It was completely uncontaminated. And said, Basically what they said was, you can come here, pollute your harsh content and nobody will notice for a very long time and so that that's something that happened in post-colonial nations you know it happened in africa it's called concessionaries you know that governments give basically sell aspects of the country sell aspects of the culture in return for their own ability to run the country. in order and that they can't really run it on any other basis uh so they sell off parts of it like selling the furniture and that that happened in ireland so the second thing then in relation to that is that we joined the eu and that took our uh, our political power away from us really we, you know they became our leaders became simply you know messenger boys and the third thing that happened then was that as a result of all of this that the kind of people that you would have expected to to attract into politics weren't interested in that that kind of deal to go to be a messenger boy did not appeal to them so you got the lowest caliber of individual going into politics. Politics became a kind of a a sport where people joined and went along to meetings at night and suddenly you had the most idiotic member of a party ending up as leader because everybody else would fail or everybody else would lose interest. And, you know, we've had the most extraordinary people as our Taoiseach in the last last couple of decades. Unbelievable. People that you wouldn't allow... You wouldn't send down to the corner shop for a message. Uh, we're running the country, and and uh, so all of this came together. You see, then when the corporations came in, they realised this. They realised several things, in my estimation. They realised that actually Ireland had a lot of value in lots of ways.
0: You you said you referred to it. They they referred to it as a trophy country. That was my
1: phrase. Yeah. That they regarded it as a trophy country. This is in relation to abortion and gay marriage. That they were able, because it had been an nominally a uh, Catholic country, that they could wave Ireland around the place and say, "Well, you know, little old Ireland, this reactionary outpost in, in, in the Atlantic, is uh, you know with us, and you're still a holdout." You know, like you
0: know, one, I, one I, of the things that one of the things that struck me was the uncanny uh, synchrony that all of these things are going on at the same time uh, throughout the world, not just in Ireland, the same yeah. modus operandi. Yeah. So at the same time, I, I mentioned the story of uh, Brendan Ike being driven out of uh, as CEO of, um, of uh, Mozilla at the same time. At the same time, the same forces are all also accused of homophobia. The lynch mob appeared and he was driven out of office. Same yeah. thing happened at the state of Indiana. Uh, they, they pass a, a Religious Freedom Restoration Act, and then it's the same group of people. The CEOs and their homosexual proxy warriors show up and demand that the, representative, the elected representatives of the people of Indiana see their authority to them. Yes. And these people do it. And, and, and so it turns out that it, uh, the biggest force in Indiana is not the government. It's Eli Lilly. Which yeah. turns out to be a pharmaceutical company. These are uncanny similarities between the situation here and the situation in Ireland. They certainly are, and you know, in relation to those kind of
1: incidents, I mean, it's important to say I think that there's there's a double layered uh, objective in all of that. Obviously, in, in relation to Brendan Eich, for example, it's important they they take him out for take for the sake of taking him out because he has offended their rules and and, and so on, and and, uh, he's offended against the gay uh, canon and so on. But it's also that even if in my case, for example, I hadn't done very much, but they still needed scapegoats. They need somebody to make an example of each periodically so that everybody else will learn the lesson and that nobody else will dare to open their mouths against them. That's the most important thing about all of this, that they're kind of like show trials that they create in order to show this is what will happen to spread to spread terror yeah we can they more or less say to people look if you want to go against us it's up to you and we we need you to do that because we're looking for scapegoats and we we have the capacity like to destroy you we can turn your family against you we can make your children hate you we can make your children deny you that's the power we have do you want to take us on go ahead be my be my you know make my day as yeah. king that's yeah. kind of the line they take. And so so that was our situation in Ireland. See then, they, the next layer then was the the big tech companies came in, they they were quite late to come in, coming here. Like they did, I mean, obviously internet was quite late anyway, so it's only the last 20 years. But they started to realize that Ireland was, because we were English speaking, relatively educated in certain technical ways. I don't think we have a very good education system anymore. I know that our colleges have plummeted down the, the, the tables internationally uh, but you get a vocational education in Ireland and you end up capable of tip your way into Google uh, uh, or wherever and that was useful to them uh, so they come to Ireland they look around and say oh this is a this is a fine place yeah yeah the weather isn't great and you don't have abortion well we're going to have to fix that because you know we uh, believe in abortion because we're modern enlightened people obviously, but also because we're in a big corporation and we have women working in it and we don't want them taking time off to have babies. So you're gonna get abortion in Ireland, right? And our poodles say, right, how do we do it? How high do we need to jump? You just tell us what we need to do, Mr. you know, corporation, sir. Mr. Google, sir, Mr. Facebook, sir. And we're used to tipping
0: the cap to foreigners. So, you know, we've learned it's in our blood. So you just so you're talking about an inferiority complex. Yeah, I've yeah. always I've always felt the educated classes were the had the worst inferiority complex of all the, the writing, the writers. Would this have been possible without the writers? Oh, yeah. Well, that's a very interesting thing, you know, that in as in
1: America, uh, almost university artists, writers, poets, you name it, are all on the same side of all these arguments. They're all on the side of the LGBT goons. I mean, they're, this is the amazing thing to me that we start off articulating principles of egalitarianism and equality and fairness and truth and justice and all that. And then our people become just like the people that they were criticizing in the first place, just like them, except they're attached to a new power block, a new form of corporatism. LGBTism, you know, all of these things, which are more insidious and nastier than the church ever could have been or ever was in Irish history. I mean, for all, all the demonization of the church as being this kind of oppressive force, it's nothing, it did nothing like what is happening now at the hands of the, 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 the gay goons who prowl uh, the streets looking for scapegoats to attack. And the corporates who basically censor any voice that they, in any way questions what they're proposing for Ireland uh, and instructs our, politic, our so-called leaders to, to implement these things. And so that's what you're dealing with. I mean, you're dealing with not people, they don't have any choice, you see, except to leave politics. The, yep. you know, all our politicians don't have any other choice. Yep. They can't stay in politics and not do what they're told. That's key to understanding. And in some way, I have a simple... There's
0: no representative government anymore. No, there isn't. I was watching... This is when I was in... When Donald Trump came to uh, South Bend, Indiana, he had the biggest crowd in history. And the the consciousness of that crowd was that basically we had two parties that represented the oligarchs and no party that represented the people of Indiana. And that's why Donald Trump got elected. He gave those people uh, some type of hope that he would represent their interests
1: that 's why and that 's why that the the press of the world of Europe as much as America demonizes Trump and treats him like some kind of idiot and as some kind of dangerous menace that he 's going to suddenly explode a, an orange Hitler mustache and start sending. Tanks down Pennsylvania Avenue to take over America, and so that he won't be removed as president forever, and 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 so on, and so forth. It's nonsense that you have to p- read in the newspapers every day and listen in every conversation. It's very interesting. Ireland is very bad at that. People walk up to me in the street. They don't haven't. I haven't written in Irish papers for about uh, five years, but they walk up and immediately the, the opening gambit is some something derogatory about Donald Trump, maybe, or Boris Johnson more recently, and I sort of say. Uh, well, I, I don't really. That's not my view of uh, President Trump. And they're horrified. They're horrified that anybody could have a thought about Donald Trump that it wasn't pejorative. It's it's extraordinary to them. They don't understand anything about it, but they've been told what to think. And this is where we stand now in Ireland. This is the terrifying thing. People just, remi- you know, Romano Guardini in his book, the, *The End of the Modern World*, talked about societies in the you know advanced stage of disintegration, and he uses, he said that. They become cluttered with catchwords. and i that was a really the phrase that jumped out at me when I read it first, and what's that mean what's, What would that be like now? I know what it's like because people actually walk up to you in the street and keep saying the same phrases, oh, I think that guy's a racist or uh, uh you know uh, would he be a bit homophobic uh, you know uh, you know and, and you know they just say what they're being told to say it's quite terrifying really it it makes you really. Worry about the capacity of the human, of human
0: culture. To- there's no resistance. There's no resistance. I remember the uh, the line in The Quiet Man where someone says uh, his uncle ended up in a penal colony in Australia and his father was a good man, too. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. you had an external enemy. So if you stole Trevelyan's corn the prison ship was waiting in the bay and you ended up in uh, Australia and you knew who the enemy was. And now you've got a culture where you lock yourself in your own cell every night. That's right. And you think you're free in the name of freedom. You turn that key in your cell door and lock yourself in. Yeah,
1: and you know, there's a highly ironic aspect of this thing, this accusation now that we were responsible for colonizing the Caribbean. Uh, uh, It's just laughable because the great, psychiatrist, Franz Fanon, who was born in Martinique uh, uh, and who who operated in Algeria during the civil war there. And he's like the foremost, I would say, authority on the post-colonial condition. Now, I know, you know, there's so much garbage which has been pumped into the ether from from academia about colonialism. And that's a lot of, at the root of a lot of what's going on in America in terms of the destruction of statues and the, the, the campuses and so on. But Fallon's books, The Wretched of the Earth and, and Black Skin, White Mask, to, to my mind, they're magisterial works, uh, extraordinary works of, of, of huge value. I mean, when, I, when you read The Wretched of the Earth, you're only three or four pages into it when you, you think you're, re, you're, re, you're reading about Ireland, even though he's talking about Algeria in the 1950s. You see, this is Ireland, because culturally, this is what's happened. You know, He says you know, that the, the first thing that the colonizer does when he arrives in a new territory, is impress upon the consciousness of the native, the idea that before the advent of colonialism, there was nothing but savagery. And then you see, you've done your work. The colonizer has done his work because the, 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 the native is trying to purge himself of the idea that he's a savage. And he, that's what the Irish people are doing with all this stuff in, in a certain sense. They wanna have the best, not just gay marriage, but the best gay marriage in the world ever you know cuz we foreigners you, know, like-
0: you know the irish in america had that reputation i i'm i'm, I'm I, I happen to be biracial i'm i'm uh, irish and german and so I, I have a a kind of objective view of the whole thing but the germans wanted a separate culture in america they wanted to be able to hold on to their own language and culture whereas the irish were always avid to assimilate and 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 um, when my aunts arrived in ireland they became the servants of the rich Protestants uh, yeah. in uh, Chestnut Hill in the main line. And my father was a hero to his generation because he had his own business and, and did very well.
1: Yeah, mine but, too. Uh, my aunts also, my great aunts, my father's aunts. I remember that, that they used to come home occasionally and that, that they had worked in the great, the big houses in Brooklyn and so on. Uh, and, yeah. and but this is really, you know, so true of Ireland. Like we, you know, we like, if you look at our gay marriage thing, people think we didn't even vote on gay marriage. We voted to destroy the family. That's what the vote was. Because you bring out
0: that they bring that out very well. Your whole analysis of gay marriage as basically leading to human trafficking in children is a brilliant analysis.
1: Well, that's the truth. That's what it. Did. That that was my initial instinct about it, and based on my own experience, largely after because I've been through the family court system and I'd seen that a shift had changed. I, I thought that idea. You said of blood was sacrosanct for everybody. That it was. That it was like absolute. That's my daughter. Everybody just shuts up. It's his daughter. Shut up. Judge, shut up. It's his daughter. That's what I thought. Now, they were telling me, who was looking after her when she was coughing all night long with asthma, when I would go to court the next day, they were acting as if they cared for her. They didn't care for her. And I I, I used to write this. I said, the state cannot love. The state is incapable of love. The parents love greater than anybody, their child. Nobody else can love a child like a parent. And this was something that I, I thought was, you know, irrefutable. And then suddenly I was listening to this logic, not just in the courtrooms, but all round. That oh, it was all a relative concept, parentage. You know, you, you know, you might be regarded as suitable. Then again, you might not. By whom? Hmm, by the state. And 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 state could decide that two gay men might be just better than you and 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 the mother of the child, uh, and and uh, you know I, I I found that I I that kind of was a head wreck for me that that as we now have a situation, fathers I I failed abysmally in my campaign to get rights for fathers in Ireland, and now we have a law, which allows the following to happen quite easily. If a, mo- if a mother leaves the family and takes the children with her, leaving the father bereft, this is a married man, and then she gets a divorce. And then she gets involved in a lesbian relationship. She can go back to court and her partner can go back to court and get named as the second parent of the child over the head of the father. This is actually happening. And, and, and the same for single fathers, obviously there are no rights whatsoever, so it happens automatically. And the father has no right to appeal. And we've had this for years with cases. A like, very interesting case I was involved in. A gay man who got involved stupidly, I believe, but you know he's a decent guy in lots of ways. And he got involved by, by, with two lesbians who he, he agreed to be the father of a child and that he would be a close relative, as it were. Maybe that wouldn't be known that he was the father of the child. This is mad stuff in a way. But, you know, he was abandoned by the... When he was taken to court, they, they, they resiled on the, the deal and basically tried to ban him from the life of the child, and they went to court. And uh, the gay lobby, of course, the gay, all the gay agencies abandoned this man. They favored the two lesbians. So I was the only one here, are, The Ireland's number one homophobe was the only person in Ireland willing to stand with this guy and advise him and, and, and console him and help him along the way. And I did that. You know, so-
0: You bring uh, you bring this out very well in the book. Yeah. We, uh, it's- I, I can't uh, tell the audience how, how important this book is for Ireland. You're a man of blood and soil. You're, you're a rooted Irishman, you know, rooted in your culture. And this complaint needs to be known, needs to be better known. Yeah. John, I want to thank you. I want to thank you for the, for the opportunity to talk to you. We could talk forever forever. Uh, we, we talked for hours at Notre Dame. We'll get together some other time and talk again. But I really wanted to uh, expose our audience to your book and to your insights into the plight in Ireland. So the book is uh, Give Us Back the Bad Roads. See, the, the, the idea of bad roads
1: is emblematic in our culture. It's like a running gag. It was all through my life, you know, because when you were in the north of Ireland, which is in part of the United Kingdom, and you were driving along it was like you couldn't hear anything you're just it's like you're floating on airs you know and suddenly you would cross the border and there would be no visible signs of a border except that suddenly the car would start shuddering you know as you hit the bad roads of the republic now it's reversed of course because of european money and, and all this because we're so called prosperous we're not prosperous in the slightest it's all a joke it's all a con but so the roads became this kind of emblem of our condition and what i'm saying now is like can we just have back what we were can we have what
0: we were about the answer to i'll I'll answer that question for you The answer is no no you can never go back the god is in charge of human history and the 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 pattern the the key to understanding human history is consciousness and god will allow something good which is what ireland pious ireland pious devotional ireland he'll allow it to go down the drain because conscious ireland has to replace it you have well, to become conscious. What happened to you, what you taught about conscious Catholicism has to come in here, has to make the church aware of the fact that this is warfare, and once the Irish people see that it's warfare, I think resistance will follow. The Irish have a, a, a history of resisting as well.
1: They do. They do. I I, I know that. Uh, but sometimes I look, and I had this conversation slightly with you before on, a, on an exchange just a, very briefly, but what I said at the time was that Right now, I cannot see anything in plain sight which would encourage me to, to have hope that that's going to happen anytime in my lifetime. That's my good feeling. Now, you say, I think, counter that. Well, it can happen like that. And I hope you're right about that, I really do. I, but I, at this moment, I, I'm, I'm, I'm in close to despair, I think, because of the, the quality of people leading us, the way that the corruption of the media, and the way they have bamboozled and, and 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 bullied and and blackmailed and and baffled the Irish people, uh, where they just repeat these catchphrases. So you're, you're
0: you're saying this to to an American who is now w- standing before a huge attack on free speech in America, mm. but at the same time there are 20-year-olds uh, who are boycotting pornography because they suddenly understood that sexual liberation is a form of control. That was an example of what I'm talking about about consciousness changing. I I didn't have to tell these people that they were miserable. They knew they were miserable, but I wrote a book called uh, Libido Dominandi: Sexual Liberation and Political Control that suddenly explained their situation to them, and now they woke up. Yeah, I'm saying it can happen like that. There's something happening like that. Let me not not leave on a uh, leave you on an
1: entirely negative note. There are things happening. Like there are people now beginning to merge, you know, like Rowan Croft, Gran Torino, and, and people like that, Jim O'Dougherty on YouTube. And, and there are people following them. And now people come up to me in the street and say, I saw you on this. I saw you on, on you know, that's, you know, you, you, what you said made perfect sense. So there's something happening. But as of now, it's kind of, it reminds me a little bit in reverse of when I started off. As I said, when I was a, a young guy, starting with Hot Press, we were a total minority. Like we had something like twenty thousand sales in every fortnight, and you know nobody had ever heard of hot press. Maybe, you know I, I was very proud of myself, but anywhere I went, nobody knew what hot press was. And it's almost the same way now, in reverse, that I'm in this new counterculture, a counter counterculture, and 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 nobody knows about it yet either. But maybe in the meantime, what we started became this massive wave of Uh, libertarianism and liberalism and and so on, leftism and has swamped swamped everything. And to my great regret, I had no advanced consciousness that that would happen. Now, uh, maybe the same thing will happen again, that we are the new counterculture.
0: I think it's happening. I mean, one of my great achievements in life is that I've been singled out by the ADL to be platformed. The Anti-Defamation League name me uh, by name. So I can say to my grandchildren, when they ask me, where were you during the culture wars, granddad? I can say I was on the ADL list. (laughs) I wasn't wasn't shoveling shit in Louisiana, as Patton (laughs) might have said. I was on the front lines. And I know I'm on the front lines because the ADL has named me. Yes. So you're on the front lines, John. Great book. Thank you. Thank you, Michael let's let's when when the when the history of ireland will be written it will be your book that turned the tide maybe i hope so i hope so it's all there i think it's all there let's hope so there listen god bless god bless you john good talking to you see you soon bye-bye